the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. These are letters written to real churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, what is now Western Turkey. Real churches like our church. And letters that address specific issues in these specific churches. None of them, therefore, is written directly to us. But nonetheless, each one has important things to say to us. And as we have studied them, there are times when they speak very directly to us. Now, this morning, with uh, our term card planning and dates, I want us to consider two of them together. The letter to the church in Sardis, you'll see that in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 6, and the letter to the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. The letter to Sardis contains almost unmitigated censure, and the letter to Philadelphia contains almost unmitigated commendation. One is entirely negative, and one is entirely positive. And we take them together under the title, Reputation, Reality, and Gospel Opportunity. So let's read God's Word together. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's take a moment to pray for God's help. Let's pray together. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Our Father, these words that we have read and will study now are the words of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his revelation to the church. So help us to listen out for Jesus to what he has to say to us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Help us to listen and respond to what we hear in obedience. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, you'll see inside the service sheet, as ever, just a couple of simple headings as we study these two letters under, as I said, the theme, reputation, reality, and opportunity. Reputation, reality, and opportunity. First, Sardis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, reputation and reality. And remember, this is a real letter written to a real church. Sardis was a real church. Sardis was a church, if you like, that had sermons and small groups and fellowship, and all that stuff. It was a real church. Sardis Evangelical Church, if you like, had the reputation for being alive, but it was dead, or at least very nearly. It advertised its services every week in the Christian press and evangelicals now, It had a reputation, it had history, it had heritage, it had an excellent website, a Facebook page, a healthy congregation, almost certainly numerically, gifted elders, a gifted staff team, good facilities, and healthy finances. Which church would you go to in town? I go to Sardis Evangelical Church. It had the reputation for being alive, but it was nearly dead. That is essentially what the letter says. You'll see that in the second half of verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, that's pretty straight, isn't it? If you were a group of elders in that church or at a congregational meeting, and the Lord Jesus sent a letter to you, and you were just waiting there with your great reputation, thoroughly deserved and you expected the Lord Jesus to say, well, you are a model church. Plant yourself around the city. And you open up the letter, and it reads, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Imagine that being read. Now, what's the nub of this? What's going on in a church that has the reputation of being alive, but is, in fact, spiritually dead? What is that church like? What are the signs of 
not life, but of death. And for that matter, what is an individual who has a reputation for being spiritually alive when in fact they are spiritually dead? Like, what are they like? Now, we don't get much detail in the letter to the church in Sardis as to what was going on that uh, rendered this verdict. And so we need to draw a little more widely from Revelation and the rest of the New Testament. Let me try and do that for us. An evangelical church that looks like Sardis, an evangelical church that looks like Chalmers, that is not committed to evangelism, is not alive. Because it is not an evangelical church. For to be a church, in the essence of what church is, is to be committed to evangelism. Now, commitment to evangelism does not mean programs or events, important as they are. Commitment to anything in a church never means committees. Nor does it mean ability or success. It means heart or conviction or passion. Now, let me just underscore that with a footnote. Some of us are not passionate people. But there is, in a Christian that is real and in a church that is real, an ember that burns in the boiler room of a living church, a flame that fires that boiler in the heart of that church to reach out to people who do not know the Lord Jesus with the gospel. A big part of our church life next year, and one of the things that Sam will be involved in is our gospel project. As together as a church, all 300 odd of us, we learn how to be confident in using Mark's gospel that we might release the Word of God in all sorts of ways. The gospel project will not make us a living church. It will be as to whether we embrace the vision of the gospel project or not, a gauge of whether or not we are a living church, whether there is an ember that burns in the boiler room, however strong it is that motivates us, that enables us, that is a spontaneous reaction within us, corporately and individually, to engage in evangelism. An evangelical church that is not committed to evangelism is not alive. These uh, double negatives are designed to keep you awake. It's partly the way the letter is written. It's not written positively, it's written negatively. Likewise, an evangelical church that is not committed to people is not alive. Relationships that are real, not superficial. Relationships with depth, with reciprocal commitment, these are the marks of a church that is alive, that is living. I suspect in Sardis Evangelical Church, the words, how are you, were spoken often on a Sunday. And the answer 
spoken often on a Sunday, which is banned here, as you know, is fine. Now, fine is what I often say, but a real church gets beyond the how are you and the fine to how are you really, and you're never fine. In this group of people sitting in this room, in terms of the relationships we have with one another, genuine community, where we deal with stuff together, where we support one another, where we pray with and for one another, where we care for one another practically, yes, with plenty of failures, if that is not true, then we are not alive. If it is true, we are alive. And we're not talking perfection. We're talking genuineness, a real love for one another, an affectionate commitment to one another that cares if someone hasn't been there for a number of Sundays, an affectionate commitment to one another that wants to see other people flourish in spiritual growth. And that commitment is not simply to those in the heart of the church. It is a commitment to those on the edges. A sign of a church that is dying in terms of spiritual life is where the heart that is genuine gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and the fringe gets bigger and bigger and bigger. A sign of a church where there is real commitment to one another is where there is really just a heart and not a fringe. An evangelical church that is not committed to evangelism is not alive. An evangelical church that is not committed to people is not alive. And above everything else, an evangelical church that is not committed to God is not alive. It's a good question to start at the beginning of a new academic year. Are we as a church devoted to God? Do we as a church love God? In our vision statement, you've got reach, build, train, send. You see it up there. There's a little bit in the heart of the vision statement, the circle that says, passionate about the glory of God, or just love God, or devotion to God. Never, ever, 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 ever let our devotion to the work of the Lord replace our devotion to the Lord. It's the wrong way around. Why do we engage in a gospel project? Not because we are devoted to evangelism, but to God and to others. Love for God. And it's a heart thing and a soul thing and a mind thing and a strength thing. You know these famous words of the Lord Jesus, love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength. It is a collective heart in a church, a collective soul, a collective mind, a collective strength, channeled through a prism that is the gospel or the cross or the Word of God or the Spirit of God in single-minded devotion, in adoration, in worship to God. is our desire to give our Father pleasure. 
in how we live as a church. And almost when you say that and the Holy Spirit takes up the Word of God and kind of says to us, well, that is absolutely true. Does God look down on us and feel a, or see in our minds, heart, soul, mind, and strength adoration to Him? Now, a brief comment on the individual. You might be a member of a living church. You might be a minister in a living church and thereby have the reputation of being alive but are dead. And that is so true. Let me ask you a number of questions. Do you have a real relationship with God? Now, there's a dose of evangelical jargon. What does that mean? What is a real relationship with God? What does it mean? Often I think that Christians kind of hear that stuff and they bang their heads off the wall and they say, what is he talking about? What is a real relationship with God? Now, I'd be cautious of saying it's something you feel. A real relationship with God means you know who you are who Jesus is, and where you are headed for eternity. It means you know what happened at the cross when Jesus died, that through his death you have been forgiven and made right with God. It means you know that you have new life in the Spirit and everlasting life beyond the grave. You know that as a fact. You believe it. You live in light of it. You know you have a real relationship with God when your conscience hits you like a ton of bricks between the eyes. You know you have a real relationship with God when occasionally, fitfully for me in life, supernatural, irrational peace that is inexplicable just kind of comes into your life and you do not know how you have it. You know you have a real relationship with God when what happens to you and what you are all about in life is less about me any longer but about Him and you, each other. Fitfully, yes, but that's the kind of stuff that means we are alive and not dead. And you know as well as I do that you can put all that stuff on. (laughs) There's a wonderful story told of a preacher in a church in Cornwall who wasn't a Christian And he preached all sorts of great sermons on paper. And all of a sudden, one day, as he preached, he was converted under his own preaching. (laughs) And somebody stood up in the back of the church, allegedly, and said, the preacher's been converted. Because they just could tell the difference. Reputation. Reality. I hope that little giggle there was not because you think that I might convert myself when I preached. (laughs) I'll worry over lunch now. (laughs) Of course, in the end of the day, what do you want to have in life? Do you want reality or reputation? It doesn't matter a whit, does it? Reputation. Now, there is a remedy here. Wake up, verse 2, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Wake up. Those of us who are parents, one week tomorrow or two weeks tomorrow, depending which schools they go to, will have to say, wake up, which will be preceded by go to bed early. 
Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. The ember in the boiler room is not yet extinguished, but it nearly is. Remember the gospel you have heard for years. The word of God you have been taught. Repent and turn back while there is time. One of the houses on our street was burgled last week. The thief did not tell them they were coming. The Lord Jesus will not tell you when he comes to take your life. That's what it means. So wake up and repent and strengthen what remains. Now, the last part of the first letter, verses 4 and 5, is addressed to a small group of people in the church in Sardis who have remained faithful, a faithful remnant. And to them, the Lord Jesus expresses his affirmation, assurance, and eternal security. Now, in conclusion on this first letter today, this is an urgent wake-up call that every church needs to listen to, that every one of us as individuals needs to listen to. It might not be true or relevant to a particular church. I hope it is not true of us in this stage of our life, the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. But every church needs to listen to these words of the Lord Jesus, whether for now in some measure or the future. It would be foolish for us not to do so. Now, second, Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. The theme of this letter is gospel opportunity. I did listen to some sermons on this in preparation, and one of them, uh, I think one of the worst introductions to a sermon I've ever heard, uh, begun by the association with Philadelphia with a certain product that you keep in your fridge. (laughs) How on earth they went from there? I shouldn't have told you that. Philadelphia is a very powerful and moving affirmation. And uh, as we read the letter, there are three pictures or symbols that dominate this letter. There's a key, there's an open door, and there's a pillar. Let me show you them. Just have a look in your Bibles. The key is verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens. That's the key. The open door, verse 8, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And the pillar, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So three pictures, a key, an open door, and a pillar. And the Lord Jesus is central or integral to all three. He holds the key. He unlocks the door, and he makes the one who conquers a pillar in the temple of his God. So in your mind, three pictures, the key, the door, the pillar. The Lord Jesus is holding the key. Think of one of these great big door keys. He's holding it. He unlocks the door with the key. And he makes the one who conquers a pillar in the temple of his God. The Lord Jesus is central or integral at the heart of everything. If you drive or walk past Central Church in Toll Cross, they are in that uh, big building on the corner, Central Hall in Toll Cross. Their logo or vision statement as a church is Jesus at the heart. Jesus at the heart. When a church realizes that Jesus is at the heart of things, that church is strong. Why? Because that church realizes the church 
is not ours, but his. That's why many churches use the name Christ's Church. I'm glad we went for Chalmers. Everyone else has gone from Christ Church or Cornerstone. But you see why people call churches Christ's Church? Because it is. He holds the key. We don't. He unlocks the door to gospel opportunities. We can't. He gives us security now into eternity. Without him, we are not safe. Jesus at the heart. Now, let's take each picture in turn. Firstly, Jesus holds the key. That's verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The Holy One, the true one, is the Lord Jesus. All sorts of phrases are used in these opening chapters of Revelation to describe him. He is the author. He is the one writing to the churches. And the fact that he holds the key of David is symbolic of his supreme authority. He is great, David's greatest son. And great though the authority David has, Jesus surpasses all. To him, God has given all authority in heaven and on earth. There is no authority that has been withheld from him. He holds the key. The key to what? The key to salvation in somebody's life. It is the Lord Jesus that opens up someone's mind and heart to the gospel. It is the Lord Jesus who opens blind eyes. Just uh, let me encourage you that as we engage in this gospel project, we do not hold the keys that unlocks the gospel in the lives of the people we share it with. What a relief. If you are on the edge of faith sitting here this morning, it is not my rhetoric, good or bad, or funny stories, good or bad, or even my faithful preaching that will unlock your heart to the gospel. It is the Lord Jesus with his key. It is the Lord Jesus who alone is able to unlock the key to forgiveness through his death and resurrection through his resurrection. He holds the key to salvation, to life, and to death. But that's not, I think, the emphasis here. In this letter, the key that Jesus holds is the key that opens, that unlocks the door of opportunity for a church. It is the same Jesus, the same authority, but the focus here is not unlocking someone's heart to the gospel, but unlocking a door to a gospel opportunity for this church, Philadelphia, in the city where they were. That's the point, I think, here. Jesus unlocks the door to gospel opportunity. So verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This church in Philadelphia was not strong, was not powerful in worldly terms. It did not have, for example, the reputation of the church in Sardis. It could not afford to advertise its services in evangelicals now. It was weak. It felt weak. 
And the Lord Jesus knows that. I know that you have but little power. Jesus knows that they are not powerful. He knows that they do not feel powerful. But he knows something else about them. You see what's written there. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Unlike many of the other churches, they had kept faithful to the word of God and to the Lord Jesus, to his name and to his gospel. And no doubt that had come at some cost. Perhaps it had weakened them or wearied them. But Jesus knows. He knows their works. He knows what's happened. He knows they have been faithful to him and his word. And again, it's this matter of reputation and reality. It is what he sees that matters. And Jesus does something for this church. He opens up a door of gospel opportunity. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Did Jesus open up a door of gospel opportunity because they had kept his word and not denied his name? Yes, absolutely. It was because, the letter says, they kept his word and had not denied his name that he opened up a door of gospel opportunity. Why? Because he could trust them. And because the Lord Jesus is faithful to those who are faithful to him. And no one is able to shut the door of gospel opportunity that the Lord Jesus has opened. Whether or not we go through it is another question, but if Jesus has opened it, no one bar him can shut it. And the history of the church, global and national, and in local churches, is full of examples of Jesus unlocking doors of gospel opportunity that have divine authority written all over them. Because were it not for him and his intervention, they could not have opened nor stayed open. That is why the Barnabas Fund that supports persecuted Christians calls its magazine The Open Door, precisely for that reason. Divine authority that opens up a door to gospel opportunity. Now, what was the gospel opportunity that had opened up to this church in this city of Philadelphia? We don't know. Scripture is silent. So I'm not going to draw a straight-line application to say what it is for us. It might be a significant opportunity for evangelism in the city. The gospel project, I guess. There are all sorts of people around the country encouragingly now, funding people like Sam and Andy Robertson and dozens of others across the country to be church leaders in training. The question nipping away at my heels from some of these people is, where are the churches they are going to lead in this country? That's a great question. 
we can begin to answer that. I guess some of them will be in established churches that are there. Some of them will be revitalizing churches that are dying. Some of them will be in church plants. But if we are going to train them, and if we grow strong and healthy, then Will they, as they train under our noses, raise up before our eyes gospel opportunities in this city? It's interesting that uh, across the church family, the issue of church planting has uh, raised in your hearts and minds again. One of our elders mentioned it on the video for the Vision Day, and people are talking about it. Not yet, but in time. Well, when the right building comes, Who will it be that unlocks the door to a gospel opportunity in the city? Will it be our endeavors working with property agents and so on and so forth? God uses these human means, but it will be the Lord Jesus who takes his key and unlocks the door. But if you walk through the door of gospel opportunity, and I've given you corporate applications, but what of individual applications, Sam, you've just walked through and you can't turn back the door of gospel opportunity to church leadership. It was a great interview you gave to Snow. Well, it's very heartening to hear what you said. If you walk through the door of gospel opportunity, corporately or individually. And the reality is that for people like Sam and I, it's easy. The real doors of gospel opportunity, in some ways, are where God places most of us in daily life and in daily work. If you walk through the door of gospel opportunity to advance the kingdom of God, the grass will not be as green on the other side of the door as it looks from this side. There will be opposition and affliction and struggles. There's a scene in the film, Amazing Grace, when William Wilberforce was about to take up the issue of the abolition of the slave trade in Parliament. And his friend and Prime Minister William Pitt said to him, Wilbur, he said, Wilbur, when you walk through that door, there is no turning back. And the road will be long and hard. But were William Wilberforce not to have walked through that door, understandable as that might have been, Are we not thankful that he did? And are not countless millions of people thankful that he did? There are people in this festival who are, in effect, in the world doing what he did then, speaking about it, Global Justice Commission. Were it not for what he did, The open door of gospel opportunity has a great big warning sign. It's got red flashing lights above it, and it says, danger ahead. But for the Christian and a living church, remember Sardis, 
where there is an ember that burns in the boiler room. We see that sign, and we'd be foolish to ignore it. Warning. But there's a sign that shines brighter above the door of gospel opportunity than the warning lights. And that is the sign of invitation to walk through a door that Jesus has opened and no one can shut. Because through that door is the opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. And to walk through that door, we can be confident that Jesus guarantees our security now and for eternity. And so the final image, verse 9, before, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. There must have been people in the city, the church opposing them, the gospel. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And then the Lord Jesus shifts in his mind to speak of the end. He will keep them. They, will, they have kept his word. He will keep them. They have endured patiently. He will keep them. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from the God out of heaven, and my own new name. Look at that sign to my right. I, I was trying to construct that this morning. It's really flimsy. It's a little breath of wind, and it's... And I was thinking it might well collapse during the service. What does the Lord Jesus say he will make you in eternity? A matchstick, a pillar in his temple. What do pillars do? They hold it up. Big, strong pillars. If we are faithful and true and walk through that door of gospel opportunity, Jesus guarantees our security now through life and for all eternity. You see the logic. Why does he open up the door of gospel opportunity? Because you are faithful and true to him and to his word. They don't just appear. He opens them up before churches that have the reputation of being alive and are alive. They open up before churches where the embers are flames in the boiler room. He will not open up a door of gospel opportunity if he cannot trust us. But if he opens it up, and I believe he is in many ways and will in significant ways, then let's not set up a committee to ponder whether or not we shall go through it. Let's be wise and see the warning signs. But let's hear the invitation to advance the kingdom of God. For he holds the key. He unlocks the door. He guarantees our security. Let me finish with verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. I'm not strong enough. We are not strong enough as a church 
to go through that door. I know what Jesus says, you are not. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So let's listen out for the key turning in the lock. And let's pray that God would show us where the open doors are individually and corporately. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this double header this morning from your word, Sardis. Lord, we pray that we would listen and examine not our reputation, but the reality. We pray that we would wake up if we have fallen asleep. And if our eyes are flickering shut, that we would wake up. We pray that the embers, Lord, would burn strongly in the boiler room, individually and corporately. And Lord, if you are opening up doors of gospel opportunity corporately for us as a church, for evangelism, for church planting in time, to train people, to a building when it comes, help us, Lord, to see the warning lights. Or gospel opportunities in our individual lives where we work. Perhaps a new job, perhaps another country, whatever it is. Help us to see the invitation sign stronger than the warning sign. And walk through that open door with our eyes wide open. But with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Because we love you, and we love your people, and we love those who do not yet know you. And Lord, you've given us ears. Help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.